Welcome to Patriots Perspective. I'm Bobby Kravitsky alongside my co-host Taylor Kyles. We have a lot to dive into today, including the announcement that Jeff Benedict, a New York Times bestseller, has spent the last two years digging into every nook and cranny of the New England Patriots organization and the book detailing his discoveries will come out in September. We'll get to that later. But Taylor, let's start with Wednesday's news from Field Yates that the Patriots and Patrick Chung have agreed to a two-year extension. Restructuring his contract has become somewhat of an annual tradition. This time around, he gets a $3 million signing bonus. The Patriots created $925,000 in cap space, which helped them then sign Kyle Duggar, move that was also reported by Field Yates. I didn't know this until yesterday, but according to Mike Reese, Chung has said Belichick is the only coach he intends to play for. He's 32 years old. He's entering his 12th season in the NFL. And so we don't know what the future holds, Taylor, but this puts him in position to end his career with the Patriots. And it also means that he'll be there to help mentor Duggar as he tries to successfully make the jump from Lenore Ryan to the NFL. Yeah, and this seemed to me at least like one of the more likely ways they were going to create some kind of gap space. Uh, obviously, Patrick Chung's a stalwart on the defense. He's a team leader. Um, so I didn't really – apparently when this news came out, I saw that people were saying, oh, that he might be a surprise cut. I never frankly saw that as much of a possibility uh, because he has such an important role on the team um, and just because of how long he's been there. And obviously he had that one – I don't want to say nightmare season, but not so great season in Philadelphia. Um, so I'm not totally surprised that he said that Bill is the only person he wants to play for, especially given that Belichick has owned up to the fact that he misused Chung for some of his career and did a much better job once he was back in the fold. But um, obviously, like you said, it was a move to free up cap space for Duggar, which was necessary. Um, so we'll be on the team again. And I think he brings energy, obviously leadership championship experience. You know, everybody says that he can't cover anymore and his body's starting to give out on him. And to a degree, that's true. You know, he seems to get banged up a few times every year, but he's an Iron Man, so he always bounces back, which just speaks to his character and his competitiveness and all those types of things. But um, he's still a very good safety, one of the better safeties in the league, if not just for his intelligence and the fact that he can play faster, knowing that he's got all those years of experience to kind of back him up and make up for whatever physical things are kind of starting to tail off, kind of like Brady's similar situation where you use all your experience and your knowledge to make up for your physical decline. And um, more continuity in the secondary something that we've been saying a lot in recent history. Um, it's a blessing that they've had it after, you know, so many years in the late 2000s, early 2010s, of it seemed like a different secondary every year, um, another stalwart returns. So positive move, frees up some space, uh, pads the round longer, so I'm, I'm all for it. And Taylor, the Patriots are now the first team in the NFL to have signed their entire draft class this year. According to our good friend Pat's Cap, this is the fastest they've done so in the Belichick era. And now they have $650,989 in cap space, excuse me. And yes, I did give you the exact amount. What I can't quantify, Taylor, is my level of excitement for the announcement that there's a book coming out, an all-access tell-all about the Patriots titled The Dynasty. The author, Jeff Benedict, he most recently co-authored a New York Times bestseller about Tiger Woods. He's a longtime special features writer for Sports Illustrated. And he was granted exclusive access starting in 2018, including legal documents, phone calls, texts, emails, video and audio recordings. And he interviewed over 200 people with the goal being to find out how the Patriots built, in my opinion, the most impressive dynasty in sports history and how they were able to sustain their run longer than any other franchise has. The book comes out in September. Taylor, what do you most want to learn from this book? 
Well, obviously, I'm hoping to become a coach down the road or, you know, something in that capacity. So I'd like to know, you know, those little tidbits, you know, I feel like anytime you get the behind the scenes look at these kinds of uh, situations and championship teams, it seems like there's like one line or this one moment that tends to happen that no one outside knows about, even a lot of people inside don't know about where, you know, it's one player saying something to another player, one coach saying something to a player that, you know, shifts the tide. Like, for example, Brady and Bledsoe, how, um, you know, Brady was going out there in the last drive of his first Super Bowl thinking, you know, I think Belichick told him, don't, you know, protect the ball, don't make any dump throws or whatever. And Bledsoe said, F that, go out there and sling it. And it gave him the confidence to obviously get the comeback and, you know, pull off something that a lot of people outside of New England didn't think was possible. So I would just love to know what kind of things the coaches uh, were telling the players, you know, just little bits of information of, you know, routines, anything that gave them that competitive edge that lasted, you know, not just one dynasty, but it lasted for over a decade. And it's unprecedented in sports. It's rare enough to see six championships, even more rare to see it in the salary cap era over such a long period of time with a long gap with the same two guys at the head of the organization, obviously a huge help, but something you really don't see usually, you know, like in the 49ers instance, it was Montana and then there was the gap and then it was Steve Young. So uh, I would love to know, like I know, I guess most people just what it was exactly that helped propel them for so long and what the coaches were able to do to put them in that position. Yeah, I want to learn about the first-person accounts on not only situations we already know about, but to hear their perspective of it, but also the stories we haven't heard that haven't been gotten, ha- haven't been leaked out from their 20-year run. And of course, Taylor, you talked about wanting to be a coach. Listen, NFL teams, I'm talking directly to you right now. Hire this man. You will not regret it. I'm telling you, he's going to lead you to a Lombardi. I promise you that. So look, I want to know about the X's and O's and the insight that only the people who know the game at the highest level can provide us with. Who wouldn't love to hear Bill Belichick let his guard down at least a little bit and detail his matchups and his mindset going head to head with Peyton Manning, for example? Who wouldn't want to learn about Bill Belichick's side of those matchups? So I would love that. I don't know how much, quite frankly, the book is going to do that. But we also heard that Tom Brady has a nine-part documentary coming out on ESPN in 2021. And that seems like it is more geared towards that avenue and and getting those insights, which we love. And it's just so fascinating to hear them talk about the nuances of the matchup. And then, of course, like everyone else, yes, I want to hear about the cheating scandals and how they feel about dealing with a governing body that's partial. We know the NFL as a league office is not right down the middle. And so the rules they violated, they're arbitrary when you look at them. And they were loosely enforced. It was known teams throughout the league were taking advantage of them. And so I'm curious what people like Belichick, Robert Kraft, Jonathan Kraft, and Tom Brady told Jeff Benedict. And Taylor, I'm also curious to see, though I'm skeptical it happens, if we're able to learn more from this book about Ernie Adams, about his relationship with Bill Belichick, how it came to be, what a typical work week is like for Ernie Adams, and how he was able to get so good. You hear players like Kyle Van Noy talk about how Ernie Adams will come to the, come to him during any given week of the regular season and say, hey, here's some great stock advice. And oh, by the way, this is what the Chiefs like to do on the goal line. Be ready for this. And this is where you should be in position to make the play. So I'd love to know more about Ernie Adams. He's in some of those America's Game documentaries. And we know about Pink Stripes. But I'd really love to get to peel back the onion on the mystery and the enigma that is Ernie Adams. We'll have to wait until September for Benedict's book to come out. But this past Sunday marked the conclusion of The Last Dance, the 10-part documentary on the Chicago Bulls dynasty. And it was impossible to watch this without recognizing the parallels between the Bulls 
and the Patriots dynasties. They're both the, the biggest teams in sports during their respective runs. No one moved the needles like the Chicago Bulls in the 1990s and the Patriots the last 22 years. They became global franchises during their respective rises. And then you start making head-to-head comparisons. Bill Jackson and Bill Belichick as tacticians. Jackson adopted Tex Winter's triangle offense, and he became notorious Bill Jackson for the triangle because it was so unique to the Bulls at that time. And he was great. Tell me if that's if this sounds familiar, Taylor. He was great at taking what an opponent was doing best and completely cutting off that water. So, for example, making in-game adjustments like putting Scottie Pippen on point guards like Gary Payton and Mark Jackson to take away those options. And we know Bill Belichick, he's as good as there's ever been in the NFL and really in all of sports at in-game adjustments. And then they come at motivating players from different ends of the spectrum, but they're both exceptional at keeping the fire lit for players who are already supremely motivated. But there's always the risk when you're achieving so much success year in and year out that you start to become complacent at some point. And they were great at keeping their players motivated. And then you look, of course, at Michael Jordan and Tom Brady, the two goats in their respective sports, as subjective a question as that may be. Both of them have six championships and both of them as this documentary on Jordan and the Bulls really dove into, both of them experienced a great deal of friction with their front offices. Now, obviously, the situation with Brady and Belichick is unique because Bill Belichick, unlike Jerry Krause, was also the head coach of the team. But you look at it, and from Belichick's perspective, just to dive into this quickly, I think that he not only looked at Tom Brady's age, but I think he looked at his own age and was very concerned about the idea of having uncertainty at the quarterback position after Tom Brady. He certainly didn't hide his feelings about wanting to move forward with Jimmy Garoppolo, a guy he believed could be a franchise quarterback for them. And so now he has that uncertainty with Stidham, who they're confident in, and that was reinforced at the draft free agency. They didn't bring in Cam Newton or Jameis Winston or Andy Dalton. And so we're going to see how it looks. But either way, Taylor, it didn't seem like the Chicago Bulls run or the Patriots run with Brady at the helm needed to end when it did. You know, I I think it's just, you know, for the Bulls, it seemed like it was more of an organizational decision where the top really just wanted a new team. And I don't think that was really necessarily the case with the Patriots. I think that, I mean, I don't, you know, I hate speculating about like what's going on behind the scenes when I don't know what's going on behind the scenes. I don't know exactly what the relationships are like. Um, and frankly, I don't make it a point to keep up too closely on, you know, personal relationships and things like that. But from what I do know, um, you know, it seemed more just like Brady wanted to change the scenery. He wanted to move on. He wanted a different environment, which is understandable. You know, obviously everyone talks about how tough it is to play for Belichick. As great as it is, as much as you learn and as much as you grow as a player, he demands a lot and he doesn't give you as much credit as some other coaches may. Um, so, you know, I think their downfalls were pretty different. Like even Jordan said that if he had been able to sign a contract, he would have come back for another year. Um, you know, if he'd gotten all the other guys to come back. So, you know, I think the downfalls, like I said, were pretty uh, dissimilar. Um, one thing I thought was pretty interesting in terms of, you know, these star coaches kind of, uh, accommodating for their star players, even though, you know, you think of great coaches, you don't really, you know, you think everybody's the same, everyone's equal, yada, yada, yada. But then you think about like Belichick and he talks about Lawrence Taylor, where Parcells told him once he, he went to Parcells and said like LT was late to a meeting and he missed some of the meeting. And he was like, you didn't wait for him. You know, it's just like when you know you have a great player at some point, you got to kind of bend and be like, all right, I'm going to let you get away with some BS 
because no one in the like no one in the right mind on this team is gonna tr- think they can do the same thing, you know, because you are such a star player. Um, even though obviously Brady gets ripped and you know you've heard all those stories, it was interesting to see how Bill was willing to concede sometimes um, his disciplinary approach for an elite you know Hall of Fame player, and then. With Phil Jackson, when Dennis Rodman just decided to, you know, leave uh, the state to do uh, WWE or wrestling or whatever, and Phil Jackson, he was pissing everything, but he let him play. You know, it's at some point you gotta, for the best of the team, you can't always, you know, make the Wes Welker decision where you sit him for a drive or whatever. Obviously, that didn't impact that game the same way, but um, just it was interesting to see, you know, when you got a great player like that, sometimes you know you gotta manage these personalities and you gotta understand, you know what. I got to put my ego aside. I think guys on the team are going to understand that this is a big game and we need a great player. Um, so there was that. And then also Brady and Jordan kind of both having that insane maniacal competitiveness to the point that it pisses off their teammates. And they're frankly just kind of jerks in practice because it's just amazing to see, I think, and to hear um, people who are such amazing competitors just dish about, you know, how just their mentality and all they put into it. And then to hear teammates be like, I couldn't stand it, frankly. Uh, for a long time, but it makes these guys better. You know, it forces people to understand that there is no room for error and to always try to be their best. So those are two of my biggest takeaways, I guess. Yeah, I totally agree with that part of it. I like the comparison there with the the Lawrence Taylor anecdote and, of course, Phil Jackson letting Dennis Rodman be Dennis Rodman. And he was running on fumes at that point in his career, but I certainly think the Bulls got the most out of him and got more out of Dennis Rodman than any other NBA team could have. The one part that we seem to disagree on, Taylor, is that Brady a couple of years ago wanted to sign a two-year contract that really would have set him up to end his career with the Patriots. Jordan wanted one more crack at it, a chance to go for seven. And just to spin off that, Taylor, is the idea that fans in the media look at it and they love the storybook ending. Great player goes out with the championship, but Michael Jordan will be the first to tell you. And I'm just guessing that Tom Brady feels this way as well. He would rather continue to play because the love of the game, the love of competition and being on that stage, he would rather go for seven and lose in Jordan's case. Brady would rather go for a championship and and know that when he retired, it was really time to go. It wasn't cut off prematurely and certainly not by external forces than have the satisfaction that comes with walking away with six championships, but feeling like you had another run in you. Yeah, I think, my bad, I messed up the timing there. I thought you meant more like towards the end. Absolutely, no, I think there is some of that, absolutely, um, where Brady mentioned that he wanted a long-term deal, and obviously over time that probably splintered that a little bit. So, uh, I mean, not a ton to add. You're completely right. I just fixed my timeline there a little bit. So, uh, yeah, definitely similar situations to, you know, a couple years before Brady decided to leave like we said, when he did want that contract extension. So, you know, history is what it is. You wish it could go one way or the other, but uh, who knows, man, we got the Stidham era to look forward to. So it's not all gloom and doom here. We got some optimism. Hey, I believe in Jared Stidham. Thank you for segueing as we wrap up with our final topic, addressing and giving our answers to a tweet from everyday fantasy football that's generating a lot of discussion. The tweet provides a set of criteria and asks people to fill in who from their favorite team fits each description. The first category is most overrated. I genuinely don't think there's anyone on the Patriots who's quote unquote vastly overrated. Taylor, you put no comment for that category when you filled this out on Twitter. So I'm going to take it that we're in accordance there. And that created an opening for us to spin off this question into a conversation about Sony Michelle. 
In 2018, in the playoffs, he averaged 4.7 yards per carry, and he had six rushing touchdowns. He was a huge part of them winning the franchise's sixth Lombardi trophy. And then last year, of course, a down season for him, 247 carries, 912 yards, seven touchdowns, 3.7 yards per carry. Pro Football Focus graded him as a 68 overall, down from 76.1 in his rookie campaign. And we don't know who the injury bug is going to bite Taylor, but with David Andrews back in the mix, Joe Tooney still on the roster as of right now, I'm optimistic that a healthy offensive line will go a long way towards Michelle bouncing back next season. Absolutely. And then at the right tackle situation, especially you look at Marcus Cannon and there's a little bit of speculation of, you know, is he going to be the starter? Maybe it's Yanni Kajus because of how much promise he showed when he was in college. Yanni Kajus himself is a road grader. You know, he's very similar to Marcus Cannon in that pre-draft. A lot of the things that people were pointing to is the fact that he's just this massive guy who's very powerful and he's going to move guys. Um, especially Michael Onwenu. You know, if you just talk about the youth on the line, you got some guys who could be starting in the future who are really powerful men who can move bodies to the line of scrimmage. So, I mean, pivot back to Michelle. Uh, the offensive line was obviously a huge problem. And you could see it when I watched the tape. I watched some of his lowest rated games, according to PFF, and I watched some highest rated games as well as some of his uh, games in the playoffs in 2018, just to see what was the same, what wasn't. And first, I think it's important to start. I just want to do this really quickly to go through the scouting reports for Sonny Michelle. Because people love to say that he was a bust, he's a disappointment, and all these things. And I think it's very important to understand what the Patriots may have thought they were getting more than just the player, you know, the person, the the, the mind, the things like that. So to go for, with Lance Zerline with his scouting report pre-draft, he noted that Sony was a two-year captain, a vocal leader, a versatile runner, good in pass protection, and there was upside as a receiver, which Chubb, who a lot of people obviously – Hindsight's 2020. Chubb is a phenomenal player. Uh, he proved a lot of doubters wrong after the draft. But pre-draft, a lot of the you know notions for Chubb was that he wasn't very versatile. He was more of a stiff runner. Uh, so you, it's hard to really say that the Patriots are wrong for not choosing Chubb over Sony. Both of them were actually captains. So you look at the Patriots and what they want in their young guys, especially first-rounders or early guys, they love leaders. They love someone who can come to the locker room and be a mature presence who understands the seriousness of the game, but also, you know, can be a lighter touch and be someone who can talk to the team and provide some levity or just, you know, some knowledge and ground everything a little bit. So when you look at that, when you look at the fact that he was versatile, which we saw in the Super Bowl against the Rams, he ran over, uh, I think it was over a dozen different run concepts, which is pretty insane. There's not a lot of running backs in the league that can do that. And he's good in pass protection. I mean, you think about it, the Patriots love play action early on with their workhorse running backs. So you want somebody who can work for you in pass protection because they're going to be faking the handoff and then taking whoever, you know, is extra rushing or anybody else who may be coming after the quarterback. And then when you look at also Matt Miller from Bleacher Report, he mentions that Sony played well against major competition. He has good vision and capable of finding optimal running lanes, dominated behind fellow first rounder Isaiah Wynn, who's also a Patriot, obviously. And there was less tread on the tires because he wasn't the workhorse when he was at Georgia. Now, obviously, I think the knee issue is really what changed the tide and what really I think a lot of fans point to is him being a bust or him being a disappointment because you see there's not as much explosiveness. He doesn't make as many people miss with those violent cuts. You know, he's not a juke guy. He's not Deion Lewis where he's going to you know stutter and break across the field and leave some guy in the dust. But he's a strong runner, and like I said, he was able to make those violent cuts where he stops on a dime and then cuts in a different direction. And you don't see that as much in the pros. Again, I think that injury is why. But he still has the versatility as a runner. He's still a respected player. He's still good in pass protection. He's developing as a receiver. He wasn't great last year, but he wasn't also used in that role very much. 
And you also saw him make up for a lot of the times when the offensive line was not helping him out. He was breaking tackles in the backfield. He was running away from defensive linemen who were right in his face, getting to the edge as much as he could without a really solid foundation out there a lot of the time, especially considering on those pitches you had Marcus Cannon and Marshall Newhouse a lot of the time going out and trying to block guys in the open field, which was not a recipe for success the vast majority of the time. So you know, I, I just get frustrated when I hear – people kind of dog Sony for being this big disappointment. And, you know, especially with someone like Rex on the uh, roster, who he's bouncy and he's someone who can make those crazy uh, cuts and they design a lot of cutback lanes for him to take advantage of that. But Sony does his job very well. And I think when you give him a line, I'm not saying they have to open gaping holes. He's also good at finding cutback lanes and things like that. But I think when you give him the support of an offensive line, that's at least competent and can generate some movement off the line of scrimmage. I think he's going to give you at least a solid back, who is also a great leader. He's someone who the team enjoys. They enjoy being around him. And again, the pass protection is huge. You really can't underestimate uh, that. So long-winded explanation. I, uh, you know, Sony's one of my guys. And I, 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 you know, I don't think he's what people expected. He's not what I expected personally. But considering where his body is right now and what the team asked him to do, I don't think there's a lot of room, you know, to take away from him. There are times where he'll miss a running lane. I'm not going to say there aren't. You know, there were some times where I thought he was a little bit too – kind of dead set on following his assignment and missed some holes elsewhere. But for the most part, I really don't think there's a lot you can complain about with Sony other than the fact that he's not as dynamic as you expected, which when a guy has a major knee injury, you know, that's to be expected. Yeah. And when the Patriots drafted him, they knew about the knee injury. And so my look on it when they picked him was four year timeline that he's a running back who will probably be getting his second contract elsewhere unless he really defies expectations and is able to consistently stay on the field and be healthy at the end of it. But to label him a bust after two seasons in the NFL is way too quick. There is a, a clear gap between being a quote unquote bust and looking at it and saying, well, they could have gone in another direction with that first round pick and gotten more value for it. That's fair game to me, but to call him a bust at this point is way too early and a bit ridiculous pivoting now to the next category on this set of criteria, most underrated. Taylor, I went with one of your favorites. You've called him Captain America in the past, and that's John Simon. I, I'm not going to step on, on your answer there or go about any other players. I'll just focus on John Simon. I think that he's someone who the fans know is a good player but don't fully appreciate how much the Patriots trust him in the run game and against the pass. When it comes to setting the edge, a heavy responsibility. The Patriots take a huge blow with Kyle Van Noy heading to Miami, but they can trust John Simon as he might not be a heralded player. He's probably not going to make a Pro Bowl at any point, but I think that they look at him as one of the pillars of their front seven. Absolutely. You know I love John Simon. If you look at my Twitter, you'll completely understand why I feel for him the way I do. Like you said, he's so consistent. He's strong, extremely smart player. There are times where you'll watch him against the Patriots from former years and he'll jump out. That's happened to me like two or three times where I like I know I watched uh, him on the Texans for a couple games and he's just making plays left and right. He continues to do so here. I love him. Um, I had Adam Butler. Uh, because I think he's someone who has a major role in this defense that I don't think a lot of people fully appreciate because his job is he's like a nose tackle 
well, he is a nose tackle usually on passing downs, but it's like in the run game where someone like Vince Wilfork isn't going to get great stats because he's freeing stuff up for the linebackers to clean up against the run. Well, Adam Butler has a similar role when they send out their rush and their blitz packages where he's attracting a lot of attention and freeing things up for linebackers or other defensive linemen who are going to loop in the area that he was once in because he attracts so much attention with his quickness, with his power, fantastic leverage, active hands. He can chain moves together. Um, and not to mention, he wasn't a very good run defender when he first entered the league. I thought he was going to get cut a couple years, a few years ago. I feel so, 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 so silly for thinking that now. But at the time, he wasn't a very good run defender. He was a very, you know, pass-only option. And he has completely shut me up when it comes to that. I'm actually putting something together on him right now. And he is really, really good against the run. His hand placement is fantastic. Like I said, that ability to chain moves together as a pass rusher also works against the run when you're trying to shed blocks. And you can see that he's got some little technique things, some tricks he's picked up on. There was one snap I saw against him uh, with the Browns where they ran wide zone. And the guard tried to reach block him, which basically means you want to get in front and kind of wall him off. Well, Butler knew it was coming and actually got underneath the block. He swam the offensive lineman and got under and then crashed. And the lineman was kind of just turning around trying to find him. So, you know, Adam Butler is someone who I think is a very well-rounded guy. Doesn't get a lot of attention because he doesn't get a lot of gaudy stats, even though he also has, I think, like three or four pass breakups last season. You know, so, I mean, he's got decent numbers for someone who plays his role, but um, I wish he got a little more love outside of New England and uh, even in New England. But, um, you know, maybe my list will change some minds. I don't know with what little influence I have. <laughs> yeah. And then, Taylor, best player. We don't need to spend any time on this one. Stefan mm -hmm. Gilmore. Show me someone who didn't fill him out for this category on Twitter. First cornerback since Charles Woodson in 2009 to win Defensive Player of the Year. So, for this one, when you stack him up to everyone else on the Patriots roster – he wins in a landslide. So let's move right ahead to new edition. And both of us looked right at the rookies for this one. I went with Josh Uche and Devin Asiasi. With Uche, you look at the athleticism that he infuses into the front seven. They really targeted versatility in this draft. And he checks that box with his ability to play in the middle as well as on the edges and what he could potentially do for their pass rush. I'm excited for what he can bring to the table. And then you look at Asiasi. I think he's a perfect fit in this offense with his ability, how good he is off play action, most notably. And you look at his physical traits and what he can become. And then you look at some of the questions like he has to cut weight. He served a suspension and some people question his maturity. And so I think this was a perfect marriage between a team who was sorely lacking at the tight end position and a player who has immense potential and so much talent in this impressive blend of physical attributes. You look at him, for example, he's most known as a pass catcher, but how he's always keeping his feet moving when he's blocking and the motor he plays with in that phase of the game. And so I think this is a great environment for Asiasi to go to, to potentially get the most out of his abilities. Yeah. I pick, I wish I'd gone with two picks. I only went with one, but I cheated. That's fine, man. That's fine. We cheat. Winners cheat. Um, oh, I probably shouldn't be saying that on a past podcast. Whatever. Scratch it. Um, we touched on it earlier. With um, Josh Uche was on my list. Uh, I just love the versatility. Like you said, he's someone who could play. He's fantastic in coverage. Um, I think he can only get better because he didn't play much there in college. He can play off-ball linebacker. He can play on the ball like Kyle Van Noy, where I think he's going to be very uh, important when it comes to their blitz packages and rushing and looping and using his athleticism and 
what may seem like a lack of size could, you know, it could seem like it's a default or a defect or, you know, whatever label you want to use, but it really helps him when he is up against those bigger uh, offensive linemen because he can duck under their blocks and use his leverage and that fantastic balance that he has around the edge. He can use that inside as well. Uh, and then, so that's just him as a rusher in coverage. I think he's a good run defender as well, although we haven't seen a ton of that from him in his college career. So yeah, no, Josh, Uche, I'm right there with you. Appreciate that. And then for, could surprise. I went with Bo Allen and I looked around Twitter. Yeah. It's entirely possible I missed it, but I didn't see anyone else put him in. And I think that speaks to, we don't really know what to expect from him. Pro Football Focus gave him a grade of 72.6 overall last season, 36th at the position, 73.9 against the run, which is what he's best at. Compare that with Danny Shelton, whose spot he's taking in the lineup. And Pro Football Focus graded him as a 67.4 against the run, 73.5 on pass rushing snaps, which is where Shelton's better. So I'll include that as well. But really, when you look at the contracts and how similar they are, I think that the Patriots chose Allen over Danny Shelton. He's making slightly less. And with the Patriots, of course, that's relevant. But nonetheless, I think the Patriots feel like they are getting an upgrade in the running game. I don't really know what they have in regards to Bo Allen's ability to two-gap and be right there in in the middle of the defensive line as a true nose. But nonetheless, this is a guy that the Patriots seem confident in, and I don't think fans know much about. And Taylor, I'm going to half cheat right here. So maybe there's no such thing, and you can just dock me the full point. I'll take it. But I thought about putting Mohamed Sanu on this list because people are so down on him after what he didn't contribute to the Patriots last season, and it was frustrating to see him constantly on third downs run short of the sticks and get stopped shy of moving the chains. But I think so much of it had to do with the ankle injury. And so we're talking about a good veteran player who's also versatile. And I think that as long as he stays healthy, he's going to be productive next season. I hope you're right for both of those guys. I really do. Um, For me, I went with a rookie. I went with Anthony Jennings, another young guy, because I feel like he's a player that's not really – his skill set isn't fully understood, especially when you look at his athletic profile. He seems like strictly – not a Dietrich Wise guy because he's more stand-up, but really just a stout run defender on the strong side. I feel like that's what his profile kind of looks like. He's, what, 6'3", 6'2", 250 pounds or something like that. But he's a really versatile guy. He can play off-ball linebacker. I've said this in threads. He can play spy. He can drop deep into coverage uh, in zone. He plays mostly, uh, you know, I think he played middle hole a little bit, not very much. Played in cover three in the hook zone, mostly in the middle area, not really much on the sideline. A few times he covered backside of the backfield competently. Not someone I think you want, obviously, in coverage on early down or late downs when you could put a safety or, you know, one of your more athletic linebackers like Uchan there. But when you look at the fact that he is a stout run defender, that does check out. He's a competent pass rusher. He'll at least push the pocket for you. And then he can cover as well. I think he's someone who could probably start earlier than a lot of the rookies. Maybe Devin Asiasi is the only guy I could see really stepping in and contributing early on the way that I see that for Anthony, Anthony Jennings. Um, but on that strong side, I think it's competition between him and maybe Brandon Copeland, maybe John Simon if they want to move him to the other side, but I'd like to see John Simon stick with where he usually is on the right side, the weak side, typically of the uh, defense formation, and then have Anthony Jennings and Copeland, those bigger outside linebacker types, really on the strong side, holding it down and stopping the running back. Yeah, with Jennings, I look at him as being a, a solid player who, when it comes to the coverage aspect of it, the I want him dropping back more in that hook-to-curl area as opposed to the flat. The less space, the better. 
and being able to just keep guys in front and then close and make the tackle as opposed to turning and, and going with a running back, for example. But I do think there's more athleticism with Jennings that meets the eye. I'm excited to see what he brings because I think he's going to make a smooth transition from Alabama to the Patriots. And then the next category, Taylor, is who's going to take a leap. And I think the obvious answer there for Patriots fans to hope for is Nikhil Harry. And you can say Jared Stidham. He was on the roster last year. Now he's going to get his shot to start. But I went with Nikhil Harry, who is this, I think, between the situation he was in last year and working with Tom Brady, I think he'll be better for that, something you touched on earlier. I think that he'll be better for the way he went into the offseason with people kind of down on him, not really respecting the fact that he tried to jump in late in the season off an injury into the Patriots offense with TB12. And so you go through the fire like that, and then you start working with Rashad Whitfield and Dwayne Allen's brother, the former Patriots tight end, Justin Allen, two movement gurus, and working on being better and and changing how you go about the process and your physical approach to the game. And so I really think I'm excited to see what Nikhil Harry does, how Josh McDaniels, having had more time to really figure out how to maximize Nikhil and move him around as this chess piece, I think Nikhil Harry is in prime position to take a big leap forward next season. Of course, we know about the impact that this pandemic is having on training and all that, but I, I like I said, I stand by my stance on Nikhil Harry. I'd buy stock in him if you haven't done so already. And then I'm glad you didn't touch on another candidate for that starting edge spot in Chase Winovich. I don't know if he's necessarily going to get it and be lining up opposite of John Simon. We talked with Matt Chatham last week about given Winovich's build, you've got to be smart about managing his snaps and how much you're playing him over the course of a game, over the course of a season. But I really look at him as someone who it's a big season for, even though it's only year two. That's when some players make the biggest jumps throughout their whole careers. So We've seen what he brought to the table as a pass rusher and Taylor looking up his stats. I didn't appreciate how good he was in his role last season. Pro football focus graded him 72 and a half. Did you know that he had seven sacks? Cause I did not realize that he also had 12 tackles, 13 hurries, 23 total pressure. So I didn't realize he was putting up those kind of numbers in 291 snaps while almost exclusively being used as a pass rusher. I'm curious to see if he can become more dynamic and contribute more against the run And then, Taylor, I went with the guy you spoke to earlier, Adam Butler. He improved every year of his career, and so that's why it's justified that you thought, hey, maybe this is someone who's not going to make the team in year two because there's no way that he considered himself a roster lock at that point, one year removed from being an undrafted free agent. And so he's continued to grow and evolve his game, and I'm curious to see if he's leveled out, which is fine because he's still a really good player and so important, especially – for the Patriots pass rush. And this season, you look at their defensive line, they're counting on him more against the run this season, but also if he's able to, in fact, level up. And so I'm excited to see what Adam Butler, someone who's improved every season in the NFL, can do this season. You're a cheater, cheater, pumpkin eater over there. Oh, I'm big time cheater. That's all right. This was, this was blatant. We're not hiding it. Everyone can see we're doing it, but we're doing it anyways. Sue us. Uh, I went with – I. I Wanted to go with one of the older guys because I feel like year two, it's not totally fair. I mean, I way overthought this 
probably anyway. But um, for take a leave, guys, I wanted to focus on guys who've been in the system at least two years just so we have a better idea of, you know, they're comfortable and everything like that. And the year three jump is really where you expect a player to establish where they're really at in their young careers. Uh, the second year, sometimes it's more of a transition because rookies aren't always playing a lot. Like Nikhil Harry is going to be in that position. Um, although I do like him as a candidate. I went with Isaiah Wynn. Um, obviously, he missed his first season. Second season, he missed a huge chunk of it, but then he bounced back really well. And I thought that, honestly, I think he has the potential to jump from being, I think he was an above average starter or, you know, slightly, maybe slightly above average. Uh, I think he could go on to be a very good player, a very good left tackle in this league. He's quick. Uh, he recognizes stunts and blitz ex blitzes extremely well. I think there's just some technique things he needs to shore up. But uh, when I looked at, you know, third year guys who really needed to make some kind of statement, um, and had at least an inside track to believe that they could make that jump, I, I thought it was hard to not choose Isaiah Wynn. Yeah, I'm hoping injuries don't derail his career because he has the potential to be a franchise left tackle. And right now the Patriots have him on a rookie contract. So the way that, you know, not only his athleticism, but with his hands and the way that he's able to, to get into a pass rusher's chest and they just stick to him is really impressive. So I'm hoping that Isaiah Wynn, in fact, is able to to stay healthy, stay on the field, and at least have an honest chance to live up to his potential. And then for a prove-it year, Taylor, this is our last category. We spoke about Sony Michelle. We discussed Chase Winovich. The guy that I want to go in depth on right now is Juwan Bentley. 291 snaps last year. That was less than Chase Winovich. Pro Football Focus graded him as a 67.6, a 62.7 against the run specifically. And the Patriots would love it if he steps up, especially because what it could do for pacing Dante Hightower through the season and the way that Hightower plays like a battering ram. But Benley needs to step up for his own sake because they have other options. They can plug into the middle there at linebacker. And so the Patriots, they signed Brandon Copeland, who pro football focus list is bigger than Benley, 6'3", 263 pounds. He can play in the middle. If you're wondering, Benley, 6'2", 255, and Uche can play in the middle. So the competition is different. But once again, He's fighting to earn playing time and to carve out his spot in the NFL. Yeah, I had Juwan Bentley as well, but you kind of knocked out of the Great park. minds. Yeah, man, I guess so. We're here for a reason. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think for him, a lot of it was just the role. You know, it's hard to jump Jamie Collins. It's hard to jump Landon Roberts when they're both basically just better at the two things that he does pretty well. Um, Landon Roberts, obviously, a cannon in the run game. And then you got Jamie Collins, who's better in coverage, more athletic and speed and things like that. Um, again, not going to go too much into Bentley. I just think with more opportunities, he's going to get a chance to show his intelligence, his ability to be a physical presence against the run and at least be a cerebral guy on passing downs early on. The other guy I chose was Dietrich Wise. Now, he ended the season on kind of a low note. He got manhandled a bit by the Titans O-line. Then again, a lot of people did, so it's not the worst thing in the world. Uh, frankly, he's better suited to be a 4-3 four, a four three defensive end, and he's really was used more in that game. Head up over the tackle where he was susceptible to way more double teams than you would be as an edge defender in an even front. But for the most part, I mean, I think he's finally starting to understand really how to use his length and the kind of uh, chain moves together. Like I said, with Adam Butler, Wise is getting better at that. Not great. I think there are still times where, especially when he's rushing, he'll kind of panic and doesn't know how to get off a block. But he's doing a much better job at, job at getting inside linemen's chests, moving them back, and really being a presence, especially against the run, a bit more as a pass rusher. I think as a pass rusher, this last year may have been his best season. And while I don't think there's a ton more opportunity necessarily because of the depth chart, I think that all the roles that were vacated last year were filled, especially for his role. I think that Adam Butler and him pretty much rotated um, in their odd fronts, really on the weak side as a defensive tackle. So, uh, 
I would like to see him at least just put it all together and show that he can be someone who plays more than just a backup backup role. You know what I mean? So um, I'd like to see him make that jump, but uh, you know, we'll see. We'll definitely see. Yeah. And the Patriots are thin on the defensive line. We're looking for Byron Cowart to take a step forward after not playing much his rookie season. And so if wise can once again, earn a spot on their roster and then give them some juice when it comes to setting the edge and rushing from the interior, that would go a long way for him setting up his next contract and the Patriots being able to trust who they have behind Lawrence Guy, who I'm surprised that we didn't even talk about just now. You know, It speaks to the fact that so many people the whole season were saying how underrated he is. Well, he's one of the best at what he does. And so I'm glad that he played himself off of a list like this and that we were able to, to not dive into it because it's just so well understood what Lawrence Guy brings to the table. We talked about Adam Butler and Bo Allen, the other two guys up front. So if Dietrich Wise can help out in that capacity and give them some quality depth behind those three, it would go a long way for the Patriots over the course of a grueling season, no matter how many games they end up playing. That's all the time that we have for today. Taylor and I will be back here on Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern. In addition to Sportscaster, you can find Patriots Perspective on all streaming services, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, you name it, it's on it. It's free to subscribe, and it makes a big difference for the two of us. And you can follow us on Twitter. His handle is at tkyles39. That's Kyles with a Y. That's right. My handle is at Bobby Kravitsky. That's spelled K-R-I-V as in Victor, I-T-S-K-Y. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Stay safe. Be considerate. Have a great week.